Hi, this is Brandon Macon of Making Sense, a podcast where we can share and talk about different ideas in a way that is constructive and promoting greater opportunities for all. Thank you for listening. If you're ever interested in being a guest, please check us out on social media at Making Sense, M-A-C-O-N. Happy Thursday, everyone. It's uh, September 6, 2018. You're with Brandon Macon of Making Sense and Roger Barris. He is running for the second district in Colorado. Thank you, Brandon. And I, I like the name of your podcast, Making Sense. That makes uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Roger. I met you on Facebook and I was really intrigued with what you're talking about. So I decided to invite you onto the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I mean, um, it, I was I basically, I've been a libertarian since I was 17 years old. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, that first time I, the first time I ran for office as a libertarian was when I was 22. I was born in Michigan. Um, and I went, uh, but I went to, to school up in Maine, uh, to, for undergraduate. And then I came back to Michigan for graduate school. And then, uh, I started on a career in business. So I was actually an investor for the most part. I was a real estate investor, uh, first off for a bunch of, uh, a bunch of banks. It's true. I, I, I used to be a banker. I confess. Uh, and, uh, the, um, so I used to, I used to do real estate investment on behalf of my employers. And then after the financial crisis, myself and my two partners basically bought our business. We were working for Merrill Lynch. So we bought our business from Merrill Lynch and then we set up as a separate company. All of this was in Europe. So I've lived in Europe from for basically the last 25 years. Um, again, have been a real estate investor. I think groups that I led um, you know, during the course of my career invested about $20 billion into real estate. You know, I'm very happy to say that we never had a single losing year, even in the financial crisis, because, you know, in part because of my my libertarian or kind of Austrian school sensibilities, I looked around, you know, before the financial crisis and I said, you know what, this world is going crazy. Uh, so it's better if we try to sell everything possible, which is what we did. Um, so we so we came through that actually in pretty good shape. Um, and then I sold my business to my two partners back in 2015. Uh, I've moved back here to America, so I moved to Colorado because Colorado is really the lifestyle that I love. Uh, and then, uh, but always with the intention of becoming very active in the Libertarian Party, both as a candidate and also as a member of the party. So that's really uh, that's really what I'm doing. Awesome, thank you. That's a great story, and I, I love everything that you said so far. I was also into economics and finance, and. I've lived in Europe a little bit of my time, so we'll definitely have more talks about that. Today, I really wanted to cover uh, about education, something that hits home for me. I have two young kids. I have a three-year-old and a five-month-old, and my wife is from Germany, and I am from Minneapolis. However, I was born in Chicago and live in Arizona, and we're now trying to find a solution that works for our kids. And as we're looking around, a lot of these options don't seem to work out, and we're now looking at what do we do? We're going to be paying money towards public schools, but we need something different for our kids. And so I want to ask you, what would you do for a family like mine who doesn't fit the public school mold? Well, you know, Brandon, you're pointing out, you know, as, as, as you know, because you've been following me on Facebook, you've been following my campaign a little bit. You know, one of the biggest campaign themes that I have is really school choice. And you, what you're pointing out is one of the strongest arguments for school choice, which is, you know, well, really two arguments. The first one is the idea that one size fits all for all the kids is just crazy. Um, you know, I mean, we have 20, we have 30 to 60 different types of deodorant. 
And yet every kid is expected to kind of march through basically the same program in public schools. And that's nuts. I mean, you know, recently they were debating, you know, um, what, what should be the starting time for the public schools in my jurisdiction? I'm thinking to myself, you know, why should all of them start at the same time? You know, some kids are, you know, are early morning kids, other kids are not. This is an example of, you know, the insanity of a one-size-fits-all system. We have, like I said, 30 to 60 different types of deodorant. I don't know how many different types of tennis shoes. And yet, you know, the government thinks that every type of school is appropriate for our kids. So that's, you know, number one. It's a pity that you are forced to spend money to support a public school that doesn't really fit the needs of your children. And obviously, if we had real school choice, you would be able, you would have a voucher or something from, uh, from the government cover the cost of providing school, but you parents would be in a position to choose what makes the most sense for your children. And that's really the second point is it's just plain insulting the idea that the parents of children don't know enough about what their children need, you know, that, that a bureaucrat has to make these type of decisions on their, on their behalf. And like I said, it's just, it's just plain insulting. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, 90% of the arguments against school choice basically break down to you, sorry, parents, you are too dumb, too lazy, too uninformed to actually make a choice that makes sense for children. I agree with you on that. And that's one of the things that we were looking at. But some of the people that come back and say, if you do a school voucher choice, you're going to get rid of the good public schools. I personally went to some okay public schools, maybe below okay when I was a kid. And in high school, I went to a great one. So how do you make sure that you don't lose that great one like you die in a high school? So what do you do for that? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're pointing out a couple things. First off is there are some great public schools. Don't get me wrong. There are great public schools out there. But, and again, I went to, I actually went to a parochial school when I was older, but when I was younger, I went to some pretty good public schools. Now, why did I go to pretty good public schools? Because I was fortunate when I was a young kid, we grew up in a pretty wealthy neighborhood and my mother was very active in the PTA and she was a fanatic about making absolutely sure that we got the best education possible. She tortured, you know, the local school district until my brother and I got into the best school possible. Well, you know what? If you, if you come from a pretty affluent background and if you're growing up in a good neighborhood and if your mother and if your parents are very actively involved, then, you know, there's a good chance that you can get a decent public school. But, you know, what about all the other people for whom that doesn't apply? You know, and, and that is the people who suffer the most from the system that we have now is, and that's one of the reasons why whenever a charter school opens or a voucher program opens, the people who sign up for that are not the affluent kids from the suburbs. The kids who sign up for these things are, you know, the kids who are suffering in, in you know, in a really poor school frequently inner city, et cetera. If you take a look at the waiting lists for these alternative schools, it is very heavily dominated by, you know, people of color, you know, people of lower socioeconomic status who frankly are being, you know, destroyed by the public school system that they're being forced into. So yeah, there's some good public schools. But the other thing I would say is that, look, in a voucher program, you know, the existing public schools, whenever I hear Oh, you know, vouchers are terrible because this would deny money to the public schools. My reaction to that is, you know what? If they, if, if they don't, if they can't succeed in a competitive environment, 
then they don't deserve to succeed. You know, the good public schools would continue to, you know, they would continue to get vouchers from, from the parents if they're doing a good job. And if they don't continue to get vouchers from the parents, what it's basically saying is that it's a bad school and like any bad service provider, they deserve to go out of business. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I have a question for you. Some people will tell you that if you now have these public schools going away, we have too many private schools, there is a profit factor that comes into play that may get in the way of educating our children. So people may point to a few years ago, there were large universities like um, Corinthian colleges and other for-profit schools that eventually shuttered their doors. How can we prevent something like that from happening? What would you do? Sure. Well, there's a couple things, and we're and we're we're bouncing around a little bit because you know for the most part we've been talking about K-12 education, and now we're gonna we'll yeah. we'll start flipping to you know to to uh, university education. First off, you know the, the the argument that for some for some bizarre reason you know making money being an educator, which is which we which we acknowledge is a very good motivating factor in every other part of our lives. And yet people kind of say, oh, no, we can't have that in education. That's absolutely crazy. So the idea that we are going to automatically stigmatize any for-profit school is just nuts because we don't do that in any other part of our economy. And we know that the motivation to make money in general results in better quality service at lower prices. So that's point number one. And the other thing is that, you know, the idea... Once again, that parents are not going to be able to choose the better quality schools goes back to my earlier comment. It's just really an insulting assumption that people don't know what's good for their own children. Now, turning to your comment about university education, you know, we have to ask ourselves, how did we get a system where universities, uh, for-profit universities, could be ripping off students uh, you know, consistently ripping off students. And the answer is we have a support system for higher education, primarily in the form of student loans, which absolutely encourages this type of behavior. But people always want to know about like, how is it possible that colleges became so expensive in America? And I always say to them, well, why don't you ask it as yourself, how is it possible that houses became so expensive in 2005, 2006, 2007? The answer is easy. We had a huge amount of subprime lending that drove up the prices of housing back in 2005, 6, and 7. Well, the government has granted $1.5 trillion of subprime loans to college students in this country. The U.S. government is the biggest subprime lender the world has ever seen. Wow. So the, and that's done two things. Number one is just like houses. It has meant that the prices of, that the price of college has gone through the roof. If you massively subsidize any activity, the price goes through the roof. And as a matter of fact, there are studies that have been done by the New York Federal Reserve that indicate that for every dollar of student lending that the government does, 60 cents of that goes directly into higher prices of college. It doesn't make the school any better goes into additional administrators, it goes into crazy facilities, et cetera. So the first consequence of $1.5 trillion of subprime lending is to make the price exorbitant. But the second consequence is, imagine if instead of having the government, and as you know, the government will give a student loan, will give a student loan to anybody, regardless of what, the, what they're studying, regardless of the school they're going to. 
Imagine instead of that, we had private sector lenders. A private sector lender would look at the student, look at their academic performance, they would look at the program the student is following, and very importantly, they would look at the school. They would look at the history of the school. How many students have been graduated? What has been the, um, uh, the job performance of the students who've been graduated? Have they been able to make enough money to pay back the loan? And therefore, you would have private sector lenders that would basically say, you know what? I know you want to go to school XYZ, but it's a bad school. They're, all they're doing is ripping you off. They're charging you a lot of money for their, uh, for their program. It's not going to help you get a job and it's not going to help you pay back our loan. So we are not going to lend money to you if you want to go to those schools. And that would very quickly drive from the system the type of predatory for-profit schools that many people are worried about and with justification. But, you know, we can either let the market drive these type of schools out of existence, or we can pass a thousand government regulations to try to do it. And as we all know, the market is a much more effective way of reaching that result than a bunch of government regulations. Wow, that's a very good point. I love it a lot. But there are a lot of issues that we discuss about K through 12, as well as higher education now with the student loans. What would you do differently if you were to make it to Washington? How can we help solve some of these problems that people are experiencing in the educational system? Sure. So, I mean, there's a couple things. First thing, you know, it's, I think it's very important to realize that, you know, education actually has nothing to do with the federal government. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Department of Education, which is the federal department dealing with education, didn't exist until 1979. And I always kind of say to people, do you really think that education has improved since 1979? And I think, you know, most people respond to that by laughing. So I think it shows you that we certainly don't need the federal government involved in higher education. So the first thing I would do is I would shut down the Department of Education and return education to the, uh, to the states. Now, what would I like to see states do? What I'd like to see them do is to introduce for K-12 education very broad school choice. Probably the best way to do that is through a voucher program. Um, this has been the preferred alternative of, of economists forever. Um, I think it is very important that the government, you know, pays, you know, one of the mistakes that we make in, uh, in politics is, or in policy is, you know, we never distinguish between the things that the government should pay for and the thing that the things that the government should actually do. You know, I believe that K-12 education, the government should pay for because I think it's important to create that opportunity for everybody in our society. But that doesn't mean the government should do it. You know, that's, you know those are two completely separate uh, discussions. So what I'd like to see is for the government to have voucher programs which allow parents to choose the schools that make sense for their children. You know, let the public school system continue and the public school system would become yet another competitor in a system where, you know, parents basically have very liberal choice so that the public schools, which do well, will continue because they will continue to, to satisfy their clients and they will continue to be paid via the voucher system. You know, Brandon, there's actually evidence that when you introduce school choice, not only is that better for the children who go to the alternative schools, but because of the competition they face, what you find is that the existing public schools actually perform better. 
I'm a huge believer in the importance of competition. And you as a business person know that competition is what makes the economy work for consumers. It is what will make the school system work for students. Love it. Absolutely. Um, so that's what I'd like to see happen. And the other thing I'd like to point out, because you know, the, some of the biggest opponents of this change are the teachers unions. And the, you know, one thing I always point out to teachers is, look, you teachers suffer from this existing system also, because, you know, I'm sure you know the expression monopoly. Monopoly means one seller. Well, the government is a monopoly provider of K to 12 education, or basically a monopoly provider. Um, and that means that it serves its clients, the students, very bad. But there's another word that other people, that people don't know as well. And that word is monopsony, which means one buyer. And in this case, the government schools are virtually the only employer that a teacher can happen. And just like you don't want to be a customer of a monopoly seller, you don't want to be an employee of a monopsony buyer. And so one of the reasons you've seen this explosion of administration cost and administrators basically feathering their own bed and basically not paying teachers is because it's a monopsony as well. And the people who suffer from this are the teachers, and I would say in particular, the good teachers. Because this crazy system we have where we can't reward good teachers, where, um, where everything is driven by, uh, by seniority instead of the amount of work the teachers do or the quality of the work they do, is also a result of this crazy monopoly and monopsony system. And I'd really like teachers, particularly the good ones out there, to understand that they too are victims of the system. So that's what I'd like to see happen to K-12 education. For higher education, I just want the government out of the business of subsidizing higher education. I think that would solve, it would solve the price problem. Because just like when subprime loans ceased to be issued in 2008, what happened was the price of homes plummeted. Well, today, as we all know, very few people can go to college. The reason for that is because of the massive subsidies. You take away the subsidies, the price would fall to a more reasonable uh, level. And then the big debate about who's going to pay for it would largely disappear. If the prices weren't crazy, this huge argument about, you know, who's going to pay for it and oh, look at my student loans, et cetera, it's all a result of the fact that the price is just too damn high. If you take away the subsidies, the price falls, students would be able to afford it, they would be able to get private sector loans, and the only people who would suffer from all of this, and they would be the first ones to squeal like pigs, would once again be the administrators maybe some of the teachers who are basically pocketing a lot of the money, a large, a huge amount of the subsidy that the government is providing. But, you know, I say to those people, too bad. Wow. That's a very interesting point. And I love what you're saying. There has been a lot of talk about free college, and this is the complete opposite way. So thinking about the future, using this model of allowing people to go to whatever college, hopefully the prices fall, with automation and things like that, how do you see education going with new technologies and things like that? Is this something that the government should step in or what do you think uh, in the future of technology and education? Well, let me just make a quick comment about free college. As I, you know, there's an old saying, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And basically the people who are advocating free college are saying, let's grab a bigger shovel. 
okay? We are in a hole because we have massively subsidized college. And this has had a couple of consequences. You know, so the idea of giving free college, which is just more of the same, as you know, it's amazing to me that people who look at the results of bad government policy, nine times out of 10, they come to the conclusion of more government. No, that's not what we need. We're in a hole. Stop digging. So let me make two points there. The first point is that one of the consequences of the massive subsidies that we've given to universities is that we are killing people who don't go to university. As we all know, one of the big issues in our society today is what about the people who haven't gone to university? You know, what about the people who only have a high school degree, et cetera? One of the consequences of massively subsidizing colleges is that we've given rise to a huge amount of credential inflation. I mean, this is very well studied. And what, what it basically shows is that the same job that, say, 20 or 30 years ago did not require a college degree, now, because everybody is going to college, the employer says, oh, I want a college degree for this. There's absolutely no reason why a college degree is required. And what this means is that the people who didn't go to college are being tremendously disadvantaged by the system where we have massively subsidized it and we basically have diploma mills that are spitting out people who have diplomas which create an artificial barrier to the success of people who don't have diplomas. So that's one consequence of the current system that no one ever comments on, but it's very, very real. And the wow, second sure. consequence is, as you point out, if I massively subsidize a certain type of a certain form of business, okay? Let's say I massively subsidized McDonald's. Wouldn't that make it much harder for Burger King, for Chick-fil-A, for, you know, Qdoba to arise? Of course. So one of the consequences of the massive subsidies we've given to the traditional uh, university system that we have, the traditional two or four-year university system, is that it's made it much more difficult for alternatives to arise. And alternatives with technology, with more vocational training, with more apprenticeships, which is what we really need. As you know, we have a tremendous skills shortage in large parts of our society. All of these things are relatively disadvantaged because we have thrown more than 1.5 trillion. That's just the loans because we've been doing other things as well, because we've thrown trillions of dollars at their competitor. And obviously, if the government is subsidizing their competitor to the extent of trillions of dollars, that makes it very, very difficult for alternative methods to arise. Wow. I love everything that you're saying. And looking at the time, we could talk about this for probably four or five more hours if you wanted to, but I know you have a busy schedule. I really appreciate your time today. Is there any last things you want to say about education in general before we let you go? Uh, you know, Brandon, first off, thank you very much for having me. If you don't mind, if I mention to people uh, my website for my campaign. Go for it. Okay, so my website is www.barris. So Barris is just like Harris, but with a B. So it's B-A-R-R-I-S, the number four, and then congress.com. There you can find out, including talking about education. There's, uh, I have 20 different position papers there. Take a look at that. Um, and I would say two other things. Number one is that my campaign motto is freedom works. Because what I really want to show people is that, you know, the type of policies that we advocate, which are morally and constitutionally correct, they also make our lives better. 
My objective is to show them how by choosing libertarian policies, not only are we correct from a moral and constitutional perspective, but it actually makes our lives better. And the last thing I'd say is, this is off the discussion of, of uh, education, but my three major campaign promises are number one, stop these wars. They aren't making us any more secure. They're in fact, they're making us less secure and they're bankrupting the country and they're destroying so many of our youths. That's number one. Number two is let's cut taxes, but let's cut spending at the same time because otherwise it's just a charade. And all we're doing is throwing a burden onto the shoulders of our own children. And number three, and I believe this very strongly, let's create a federal government so small that we don't have to fight over it anymore because a big government is always a divisive government. And school choice is a perfect example of that. One of the reasons why we fight over what we teach our kids in school is because we're trying to impose one size fits all. If we let parents choose a school that made sense for them, guess what? That argument disappears. So, and I'd like to do that across the board. Love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you very much for your time. And we'll definitely bring up another topic or conversation again soon. Thank you. Take care, Brandon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah.